Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts, and that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now, on with the show. This is just one step away from book burning. And that's not an exaggeration. We're almost at that territory with J.K. Rowling when it comes to the trans issue. We are in book burning territory where people are just saying, you have unacceptable views. You must not be allowed to darken the doors of our homes on, on our TV screens or on our bookshelves because your views offend me so much. And where have we heard that before? Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. We are still recording in lockdown. And in this latest lockdown episode, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Hartley Brewer. Julia is, of course, one of Britain's best radio hosts. She currently hosts The Breakfast Show on Talk Radio. She has worked as a journalist for more than two decades. She has worked at The Evening Standard, The Guardian and The Sunday Express. She is known for her unapologetic style and her strong views. She will be well known to many spiked readers as one of the few voices in the media that was very supportive of Brexit and very critical of the political correctness and wokeness that is doing great harm to freedom of speech and rational discussion. Julia is one of a very select group of people who is appearing on this podcast for a second time. She was first on in April 2019, and we are delighted to have her back now. Julia, I want to start by asking you about where we're at politically, because if we cast our minds back to around three months ago with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of us at that time were asking if this serious crisis, this serious threat to human health, if it might go some way to pushing to one side or even defeating the kind of woke politics and PC politics that had dominated the agenda in the UK and other countries for many years. Some of us were saying, you know, perhaps this serious crisis will focus people's minds on things that actually matter, like human health, the economy, jobs, and and make the media and others forget about all the nonsense stuff they've been pushing for the past few years. And yet now we are 
hopefully getting towards the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, certainly the current stage of it. And all of that stuff seems to have got worse. So as we're coming out of this pandemic, there is a, a spasm of deranged wokeness in terms of the tearing down of statues, the banning of comedy shows, the increased cancellation of problematic people. All of that stuff seems to have intensified. So I just want to start off by asking you, do you think that stuff has got more intense over the past three months? And if it has, why do you think that would be one of the symptoms of the COVID-19 period and, and the lockdown? Well, I, can I start by saying I think your first problem is having too much common sense and being sane because because finally having a real problem as opposed to the preferred pronouns that people use or or any of that nonsense or to actually have a problem with whether or not you were going to be alive in a few weeks' time or your elderly parents or, or a friend or family member who's you know asthmatic or uh, or diabetic or that you were going to lose your job. Suddenly, you know, you'd think that might focus minds and you know what, now we've got a real problem because worrying about things like preferred pronouns and, and worrying about the sort of woke nonsense that and social justice warrior stuff that people have been doing on the left for the last few years is really a symptom of people not having any proper problems because this stuff isn't an issue for people who are fighting every day to pay the bills, fighting to feed their children, all of that stuff. So yeah, I, I like you. I thought right, this is a terrible, terrible thing to happen to our country. It puts all the Brexit wars behind us. It puts all this SJW woke nonsense behind us. We have now got a proper issue. We come together as a country. We, we fight this together. And I have to say, as awful as the whole pandemic has been, I really had hopes that this was the moment that our country would come together and the people would come together, left and right, different political parties, everybody. And, 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 and it did seem that way for a bit. You know, remember some of these early weeks clapping on a Thursday night? I got a little bit tearful. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a hard-nosed, cynical hack and I'm wiping a tear away from my eye. Just how, how lovely it was. Oh, but very, very quickly that was gone. Normal politics resumed. And I think one of the main issues is that some people have had too much time on their hands. Now, a lot of people have been busy with kids and working from home. Hell of a lot of people, by the way, largely working class people have carried on with their jobs. They've been stacking supermarket shelves, delivering food on, on in lorries, working on the bus, on the buses or the trains, getting on with um, daily life, being cleaners. They don't have time for this stuff. But the woke liberal laptop owning cappuccino drinking social Nazis, no, they've had plenty of time. They've run out of stuff on Netflix to watch and they've decided to go back to the culture wars. And um, the thing was... We did this, made the same mistake that that Brexiteers made after we left the battlefield, after we won in 2016 the referendum. We thought, brilliant, that's over and done with, we'll move on. We vacated the battlefield and they have come back with a vengeance. And they've got too much time on their hands. They've got nothing else more important to worry about because they think they're safe from the virus and their jobs are safe. More for them when the economic you know, recession does really hit. And frankly, they're idiots. And for, for some reason, a pandemic and an economic crisis doesn't turn idiots into sensible people. I want to ask you about one of the clearest manifestations of the kind of woke agenda that we've seen over the past few weeks, which is uh, following the killing of George Floyd and, and the huge protests that, that came in the wake of that killing, most of which were understandable. It was, you know, many, many people were incredibly angry about the horrific killing of George Floyd. But all of that stuff seems to have given way very quickly to 
almost a form of hysteria, like a form of mass psychosis where we have people on the streets tearing down statues, vandalizing statues, graffitiing public monuments. And there seems to be this effort to uh, edit the public square to make it more agreeable to woke protesters and politically correct people and certain sections of the of the influential left. And I just wonder what, what you think of this almost this war on history, this this effort to redecorate public space to make it more agreeable to uh, these kinds of people. Again, I, I think it is a level of hysteria. It's the idea that you can wipe away our history. I mean, first of all, you start from the, the argument that because of a horrible, brutal killing by a police officer in America, in another country thousands of miles away, we must erase all of our culture. I mean, that, I think, is a big stretch. Police brutality in this country, of course there's police of course, brutality. Of course there are bad apples. Of course there has in the past been systemic racism in the police service. Yes, there has. Let's not pretend there hasn't. But let's also not pretend that it hasn't massively changed and that the problem we have here in the UK is tiny, tiny compared to the issues they've got in America. Um, that's not to say it doesn't exist, but it is tiny, relatively speaking. But but the idea that that, that in some way leads to us rewriting our history questioning every aspect of our past, uh, the morality of of white people forever uh, and the morality of black people forever, I think is, again, it's just a level of idiocy. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm amazed by how many people who are supposedly very well educated. I mean, God knows what they're teaching in universities these days or indeed for the last few decades. If people genuinely think that we should be totally ashamed of our, of our British history and our culture because of something that's happened recently. Look, yes, we have a history as a nation that is almost entirely until the 1950s onwards white of having colonies and of being an empire. So have virtually every other country that's existed in a long time. Virtually every country had empires. And do you know what virtually every country and every empire did? They had slaves. Until really only a couple of hundred years ago, slaves were considered you know, the spoils of war. That was the norm. And if we're going to get rid of British culture and ransack our, our empirical past and our colonial past, then do you know what? It's not going to be much left of Italy. There's not going to be much left of Russia. There's not going to be much left of pretty much any country in the world because they've all got pasts which are you know, not looking too good. And you know why? Because the past wasn't a very nice place. The past was a really nasty place. It was a place where black people didn't have rights versus white people. Women didn't have rights. Gay people didn't have rights. Across the panoply, it was you know nasty, brutish, and short for pretty much everyone but the top 0.1%. And you know what's different about the past from now? It's that the world is a better place. Women do have equal rights. Gay people have equal rights. Trans people have equal rights. Black and white are, are equal in law. Okay, not always in every scenario in, in everyday society. We've still got work to do in all of those areas. But my mantra is, to, especially to young people who say, oh, the world's a terrible place. It's awful. Isn't Britain terrible? And the world has never been a better place than it is today, apart from tomorrow, and it's going to be even better <laughs> because the whole raft of human history in the last few hundred years has been things getting better, more people gaining rights, in, not just in individual countries, but in, in different countries around the world vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, the, the, the former colonial masters. I just find it quite bizarre that, that people don't understand that the reason we are where we are here and now, so people can protest, so that we ha can have prominent people in our government in some of the highest offices opposed to or from ethnic minorities, uh, how, how that actually happened is because 
of our past. We are the sum of every good thing and every bad thing we've ever done, just like human beings. We learn from everything. And I think people who want to pretend the past didn't happen, to rewrite the past, for, to whitewash it, for want of a better expression, I think they are failing to learn from the past and they're failing to give the past credit for teaching us the lessons that got us here today. And I think that's a really big mistake. Yeah. And the idea that taking down a statue of anyone who did something bad in the past changes anything now and will make a single black or Asian kid's life better today, I think is frankly insulting. And it's very indicative of a very negative, fatalistic outlook among some of those people who call themselves progressive. So instead of doing what people in history did, which was to think about how to improve the future, to change the world, they obsess over the past. They obsess over things that were done 300, 400 years ago, and they claim that we are still wounded by those events today. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was about the historic fatalism that seems to infect lots of these groups and, and a lot of this outlook. So black people are seen as still feeling the wounds of history, which strikes me as a deeply patronizing view of black people who I think have equal agency to everyone else and can decide for themselves how they feel about the world and about history. And then white people are depicted as the beneficiaries of slavery, the beneficiaries of colonialism, and we're all complicit in racism, whether we recognize it or not. One of the most disturbing things I've seen, and I wanted to get your view on this, is white people on their knees in, in America oh, begging for forgiveness and a lot of white liberal self-hatred in the UK as well, where it, it's become the fashion almost to flagellate yourself for the crimes of history. What do you make of this bizarre spectacle? I, I mean, it, it is like watching a cult, isn't it? It's quite bizarre. <laughs> I mean, why don't they just sort of just whip themselves in public and have done with it? Um, this idea that the sins of the father and the mother, you know, should constantly always be, you know, reaped on, on the children. I, you, know, you and I are no more beneficiaries of the privilege of white slave owners. I think, you know, we both have a Irish grandparentage. I'm just pretty darn sure that my family, given their background and given the working class heritage I come from, did not benefit from slavery, as did probably 99.9% of the population of this country. No beneficiary at all, other than the fact they might have been to Bristol and some of those buildings in Bristol were built with the profits of, of slave money. And the same with black people in, in America. And again, this is where it's very different from the black population in the UK. The black population in America largely, not entirely, but largely arrived on slave ships absolutely disgusting. One one of the greatest crimes ever done by humanity. But again, it was done by pretty much every empire over the many millennia and, and would probably have continued if it wasn't for the British or the country that stopped it. However, the idea that the people living right now in America, um, or certainly not in Britain, who people who, by the way, arrived in this country freely of their own choice, largely from the Caribbean, to come and make a better life for themselves in the UK. The idea that, that they are eternal victims and anyone who is white is the eternal oppressor. As you say, it, it basically means that we have no responsibility for any of our actions. And if we're not responsible for anything we do that's, that's, that's you know, we can't take responsibility for anything we did that was good, then we are, aren't responsible for anything we did that was bad, in which case, why don't we just have a free-for-all and everyone just be horrible to each other. I just think this idea of, of white privilege, 
look, I'm under no illusion that again and again, the studies have shown that, that for some employers, some landlords and some people, you know, you put a CV, John Smith on, you know, as the name on the CV, they will accept the application. If it's an openly say Nigerian sounding name, they were or a Muslim sounding name, they won't accept the CV. Of course, there are people like that. But we know that the vast majority of people in this country are not racist. Survey after survey, attitudinal surveys over the decades have shown a massive change. Questions like, would you be happy for black people to move in next door, for your daughter to marry a black man? Questions like that, which are very good indicators of whether people, you know, I'm not racist, but people. And they've shown such a marked change in recent years. You cannot deny that this is a better and kinder, more tolerant, for want of a better word, country than years before. So the idea that we should now be telling everybody who is black, you're a victim, and telling everyone who's white, you're an oppressor, it's not only going backwards, it rips off all of the good work that has been done in all the decades that I've been alive to strip away racism, to strip away the obsession with colour. I've listened to enough of your podcasts, as you know, I'm a big fan, to know you, know, you, you were raised a very similar way to me, which was to be colour blind. You know, my father's best friend at university was a black guy. I, I went to au pair for his black family in the moments. I, I went to a school in America when I was a kid uh, where I was one of three white kids. My first long-term boyfriend who moved in with my parents was a black guy. This stuff, I mean, I mention it, but his colour, all of their colours were irrelevant. They were not something that were remotely important or relevant at the time. And yet now they would be. Now they are so much more significant. And I think we were getting to a stage in this country where people were doing the Martin Luther King thing, not seeing colour as well. It just wasn't such an issue. I mean, look at the mixed race relationships in this country. It's huge. Half of all black men, sorry, Afro-Caribbean black men in this country are in relationships with white women. Well, what does that tell you? I mean, how racist are all these white women that they want to date <laughs> black men? I mean, it just tells you that we are a, a very open and mixed country in terms of these issues. And yet we've got a group of people shouting on social media, particularly on Twitter and the pages of The Guardian and the BBC and Sky News now as well, telling us that everything's awful, white people are terrible, black people are all victims. And I just don't think any of it rings true to people mm. living ordinary lives. I think that the colorblind issue is actually very important because it's now racist to say that you're colorblind. And in fact, there's, an, there's a couple of campuses in America where it's now considered a racial microaggression to say, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, because apparently you're denying that racial person's life experiences. But of course, the progressive thing for decades was precisely a refusal to judge people by the color of their skin and a preference to judge them by their character, by what they believed, by, you know, what kind of person. That old they racist were. Martin Luther King. <laughs> yeah. Martin Luther that King. Well racist. Martin Luther King statues will be next to be torn down by the looks of things. But the, the thing that that brings to my mind is the question of whether groups like Black Lives Matter, which is obviously a huge, vast global umbrella. I mean, so many different people and individuals and, and organizations march under that slogan. But one does start to wonder if these movements can legitimately be referred to as anti-racist, because I always understood anti-racist movements, whether it was the abolitionist movement or the civil rights movement or anti-racist campaigns in the UK from the 1950s to the 1980s, I always understood that they were about moving society to a situation where 
race was not a factor. It didn't impact on what kind of job you were able to get. It didn't lead to any form of discrimination. It didn't lead to any form of insults or abuse. It was simply something that would not be a factor. And now we have these new movements that are constantly cajoling people to think racially. You are nothing more than a white woman and you have to accept that and someone else is nothing more than everything a- that i see and learn about the world is with through that prism yeah so it's it's almost as if the the trap of racial thinking has been rehabilitated in this kind of pseudo progressive language which i think is quite dangerous especially for younger people who will now have a very different view of of what british society is like for them yeah indeed and and also again doing the work of the racists with them whether it's you know white supremacists in America the BMP EDL whoever over here you know this idea of that the races shouldn't mix that they should live separately that this is a white country these ideas but that's exactly the message that's going on from the social justice warriors in America on on, on their campuses and we're seeing it a lot in in the universities in the UK as well this this idea that that you should have you know black only spaces now look i absolutely understand you know things like ethnic minority police or organizations uh, when you've only got a few police officers who, who are ethnic minority. And for instance, you know, when I was in the House of Commons as a political journalist, we started up a women's lobby group. So the lobby journalists who were women, I think there were only about six of us at the time out of a hundred odd. But there comes a point when, well, that's no longer necessary because there's now lots, you know, all these political editors who are women. It's, it's not an issue anymore. Again, this idea of othering people and seeing people and judging them purely and judging their actions and their ability to make choices about their actions purely on the basis of things they have no control over is very strange to to judge people you know well you can only do this and you can only think a certain way because of the pigmentation of your skin or what kind of hair you have or your gender or anything or your sexuality to do that as opposed to to judge people on you know what they say and what they do these are relevant things to to judge people on but stuff i'm I'm almost 511 i've got dark hair so judging me on being a tall dark-haired woman is a bit bizarre because I can't do anything about that unless I cut my legs off, you know, dye my hair bright blonde and, you know, and, and cut off my boobs and, and, you know, get a fake willy. I am going to be a tall white woman who's brunette, you know, and, and to judge people on stuff they've got no control over. It's not just sort of really morally strange. Again, it's a sign of stupidity. It is as stupid as being a racist because if you genuinely judge people by race, you are you, your your first crime. I've always thought is that you're stupid yeah. rather than anything else. <laughs> I mean, leave aside the morality. You're just an idiot. Um, and that's the territory we're in. But this time, instead of it being skinheads, you know, urinating, you know, outside Westminster and making these arguments, we've got supposedly highly educated people. And it's not even from the, you know, University of Easy Access. We've got people from Oxford and Cambridge. We've got post We've got the lecturers at these places making these arguments. And I, I cannot be the only person in this country who is despairing at this stuff. And it, it, it's almost like dealing with uh, with small children in terms of you can keep explaining it, but they're just going to go, nope, and just going to put their fingers in their ears and go, nope. And they claim to want to be doing good. They, they claim that we have to face up to this awfulness of our past and the awfulness of the present, and that is how we deliver a better future. When they are delivering the awfulness back again, again, and the pain and the dis- differences day after day after day, and they're doing so much more damage. And my worry is, well, there are only two options. They either are just too stupid to realize what they're doing, or it's deliberate. 
because it occurs to me that actually if you are you know a social justice warrior if you are an activist who, who, who believes that the world is fundamentally wrong. You don't want there to be racial harmony. You don't want there to be harmony between the sexes. You want to tell black people they're victims. You want to tell white people they're horrible, nasty abusers. You want to tell men that they're all rapists and women that they're all step outside your home three seconds later you're going to be you're going to be the victim of a sexual assault and if they don't have that dialogue of victim and perpetrator they've got nothing left there's not there's nothing left but netflix for them that's yeah. it they've got no purpose they've got no moral authority they've got they've got nothing and it's almost like they are trying to create a race war create a sex war create a you know a gender war create everything war just so they've got the excuse to grab their trusty swords and their shields and they want a battle. And the rest of us are all going, we were okay until you yeah. turned up. <laughs> I think that's the unforgivable thing. It's becoming increasingly clear that there's a vested interest in among some of these groups and some of these activists in maintaining racial tensions, in maintaining the idea of female victimhood, in maintaining the idea that Britain is a is a irredeemably racist country, because politically and morally, they benefit from that idea because it gives them a sense of purpose. But, and financially, but, but there are an awful lot of groups that benefit financially from that yeah, as well. But it's incredibly destructive on the social fabric because it spreads really dangerous ideas. And, and one thing I wanted to get your view on, just one more thing on this topic, is it strikes me that we're now seeing the emergence of a pretty explicit form of of woke racism. And if you look at someone, particularly non-white, um, ethnic minority people uh, around the government, uh, people like Priti Patel, more recently Manira Mirza, the um, head of the policy unit at Number 10, to a lesser extent, but also Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman, these people who essentially run the country, which to many of us is a sign that this is not a racist country when people from ethnic minority backgrounds can hold the highest offices in the land. But the abuse that they get from the social justice warriors, who they openly are called coconuts, which is, in my mind, as racist as calling someone the P word or the N word. They're referred to as Uncle Tom's. They're seen as, you know, brown faces who are selling white supremacy to the nation. Uh, there comes a point, doesn't there, when we just have to say, this is just racism. It, 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 we shouldn't even call it woke racism. This is just a form of racism. Because it is. Again, and it's, it's based on the idea that if you are a certain ethnic minority, you must think a certain way because there is a view on the left that they own black people. They own Asian people. They, you know, well, they used to own and the Jews until the Corbynistas that managed to drive Jews out. It used to be like 80, 85% of Jews voting the Labour Party. This is idea that somehow exactly you are a traitor to your race. If you have these, and in fact, actually, if you look at you know what are the reasons why, for instance, um, there are so many Indian people, Asian Indians in the uh, in the cabinet is again got an incredibly strong culture of family, the family unit uh, from Indian immigrants, and also the emphasis on education. That education is the number one key to getting ahead. Which is why so many you know do so well going on in the A levels and GCSEs and into university, but also these are the skills that drive people to to the top, and yet. Uh, you would actually argue that a lot of those values, what a lot of people would consider small C conservative values, uh, you know, these are the things that, that that this particular culture values, and this is why this culture does well. And then you're suddenly supposed to view that the world is a terrible place when when you've got example after example of people who are apparently the exceptions to the rule. 
It's like when we're told there's no social mobility in this country. You know? I mean, I was married to a bloke who left school at 16 from a housing estate in Stoke-on-Trent. You know, he's another one of those exceptions. Like my parents were exceptions. My two closest friends, you know, both, everyone I know seems to be an exception to the rule that there's no social mobility anymore in this country. And, and particularly social mobility for people who get a good education and, and, and move on. But the idea that we've got all these incredibly senior people, two of the highest offices of state being held by ethnic minority MPs, not because they've been put there because they are ethnic minorities, but because that they have been appointed, that they've earned their right to be there the same way any other candidate would. And the fact that they are facing slurs for being the wrong kind of ethnic minority and having the wrong views, yeah, you, you should never call it anything other than what it is. And it is racism. And it is an idea that you can only be an ethnic minority in this country and be acceptable if you are a victim. And once you're not a victim, then you're no use to the social justice warriors. And that, I think, explains a lot about the particular groups that they tend to uh, want to sort of, you know, carry the flag for. And if, for instance, you dare, like people like Trevor Phillips, to speak out as a, as a very successful black man, um, successful and also a black man, these things aren't, aren't necessarily related, then you, again, if you ever speak out and say, Maybe all black people aren't victims. Maybe there are some things that that are holding the Afro-Caribbean in particular community back, which are happening, you know, again, single motherhood, breakdown of the family unit, values, other issues. Maybe if, you know, the black community spoke about these issues as well as tackling external racism, they would do better. Again, instantly they are a traitor to their race. They're called Coconut, called Uncle Tom. So no one speaks out. It's a very brave person now, white or of ethnic minority in this country, who does speak out on these issues because you immediately, you have it on Twitter, I have it on Twitter, you're immediately shouted down as a racist. So anyone who says anything vaguely related to facts rather than feelings, <laughs> you know, just looking at the statistics, is shouted down as a racist because we don't do facts anymore. It's about how people feel. Okay, I want to move on to another area of the woke explosion at the end of the COVID pandemic, which is not only have we seen the tearing down of statues and the graffitiing of statues and various other forms of crazy behavior, but we've also seen the erasure of comedy shows, The Mighty Boosh, Little Britain, Bo Selector, people making, you know, heartfelt apologies for jokes they made just 10 or 15 years ago. And of course, most bizarrely of all, one episode of Faulty Towers being taken down from UK TV, the infamous Germans episode, which takes the mick out of Germans and also has many uses of the N-word, both of which are actually designed to send up stupid little Englanders rather than ethnic minorities or Germans. What have you made of this? I mean, in one sense, it's to be expected because people like me and you, in fact, have been talking about the problem of politically correct censorship for a long time. Yeah. Do you see it as a continuation of that? Do you, do you see it as getting worse? What have you made of this kind of bizarre war that has broken out on comedy itself? It's nothing new. It's a continuation, but it's a continuation on steroids, isn't it? It's, it's on crack cocaine in terms <laughs> of the speed. And, what, and what's even more sinister is not that, you know, you've got a group of people on, on social media or in the front of the Guardian telling a TV company that they're, or an actor that their show is totally outrageous and disgusting for something that was said 10 or 20 years ago or 50 years ago even, or in the case of Gone with the Wind, what was that, you know, is it 70 years ago? But the actual TV companies and the, and the artists actually withdrawing, you know, censoring these, re reviewing, as they say, re you know, basically withdrawing these shows from availability online, it, just in case someone takes offence. 
And I've got, I would love, I would just love just one of these TV companies, one of these artists just to put two fingers up and do a Ricky Gervais and just say, frankly, F you. No, at the time, this was the norm. Now, I can remember comedy in the 1970s that I was unhappy with, you know, the Benny Hill, women in scanty underwear, da, 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 you know, and the chalky character. Yeah, that didn't sit right with me even at the time. But it was very soon that that was off the telly because there was a general view that it's not just it wasn't acceptable. It it just didn't sit right with people. It didn't reflect Britain as it changed. These things do change. But again, it's the same as statues to slave traders or, or, or our history books. You know, you, you, you can't go back and rewrite it. I mean, Faulty Towers was the one that did my head in. That is one of the greatest comedy series ever. And the fact that the social justice warriors who were arguing about it, the morality police, didn't even get the joke. They didn't get that the, <laughs> the object of ridicule was, as you say, these little Englander racists, anti-German, you know, the, the, old, the old major who uses the N-word. That, that was the whole bleeding point of yeah. the bloody <laughs> joke. So they don't even get, they don't get sarcasm, they don't get irony, they don't get really simple, obvious comedy. I mean, why don't they just go watch Benny Hill? It's clearly the level they're at, these people. <laughs> but again, lots of people have been very relaxed and will say that people like you and me, oh, you get your knickers in a twist, it's just a bit of old comedy, what's your problem? But it was interesting to watch people say, oh, I'm not bothered about Little Britain, or I'm not bothered about the Mighty Bishop, I'm not, oh, but Faulty Towers. And the people say, oh, I'm not bothered about Faulty Towers. Yeah, but they'll come for your favorite show soon and the point is this is just one step away from book burning and that's not an exaggeration we're almost at that territory with jk rowling when it comes to the trans issue it, we are in book burning territory where people are just saying you have unacceptable views you must not be allowed to darken the doors of our homes on, on our tv screens or on our bookshelves because your views offend me so much um where have we heard that before Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the point is that if people are happy to see Little Britain and Mighty Boosh and whatever else erased, then it, the, the logic, because, you know, censorship has this kind of unstoppable logic, is that books that are offensive will be erased too. And in fact, over the past few years, there have been numerous cases of libraries in, in American schools, and there've been some discussion of it in the UK too, taking out books by Mark Twain or John Steinbeck, or Enid Blyton because they have the N-word or they feature gollywog imagery or whatever else it might be. So when you launch a war on the past, when you start to judge past culture and past people by the values of today and by what we believe today, I mean, really, no one can survive that. Everything will be wiped out. No, well, I mean, Jane Austen, Jane Austen's gone. I mean, I, as a woman, I'm so offended by the idea that a woman would have no status unless she was married to a man of good fortune with a nice big mansion. I mean, and that I should be married off by my mother. I mean, there, there is nothing written before, I mean, God, I was going to say 20 years ago, two years ago that matches up uh, uh, the speed at which the, the, the morality police are churning through their positions. But at this rate, what you say on Monday ain't going to stand up to scrutiny on Friday. That's the territory we're in. And despite the fact we have seen this massive pace of change in terms of art, no, not everyone's, I say are the majority of the country. I don't think we should expect the whole country to, to tag along straight away. But in terms of views on sexuality, views on you know, gay marriage, on women, on black and Asian uh, and other ethnic minority people, People. I think I think we've seen a massive, massive change in, in the last ten years, and, and I would say, pretty much largely, all for the very good. 
but not everyone's going to tag along with it. But also you cannot expect something that that was made, written or filmed before that moment. <laughs> so it's almost like predicting the future. But again, yeah. what I don't understand about people who want to erase that past, there, there seem to be two arguments. One is that to simply see it now is so offensive and so terrible that, that, it, that it's, it's impossible to cope with, even though it is, it is a wonderful reminder of how wonderfully better our world is now. So why not use it as a, God, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like looking up photographs of, you know, your student digs and go, oh, I'm really pleased I don't live in a bed sit anymore. But it doesn't physically or mentally hurt you to see the pictures, you know. So I look at pictures of me when I was 20. You know what? I looked a lot better at 20 than I do at 52. Shall I, shall I, shall I rip all those or burn those photos? Because <laughs> it reminds me that, you know, I'm, I'm not the same now. I mean, it's ridiculous. But also it, it, it seems to be based on the idea that, that the past will infect the future. So even though we've seen this amazing change over centuries, decades, and even the last few years in terms of, you know, being a much more open and nice society and welcoming an equal society, if we do see an episode of 40 Towers, if we do, you know, see a statue of a slave trader, suddenly we will all become Nazis and slave traders again. We will be infected with these thoughts, which otherwise would never occur to us. And then we all go backwards. We all start again from scratch. I mean, what a load of codswallop. Complete codswallop and and cuts to the heart of the patronizing logic of censorship, which is that people who are cleverer than us have to cover our eyes and our ears. That's a key thing because I, surely these people making this argument, especially, you know, these terribly well-educated, you know, arts graduates uh, and their lecturers, surely they don't think they're that stupid because I mean, <laughs> they read The Guardian. For God's sake, of course, <laughs> of course they does. They watch Newsnight. Of course this won't make them do I mean, No, you know, they are somehow immune to it other than, of course, being white. Shocking. But exactly, it's the other people. It's those, probably it's, I'll be honest with you, Brent, I think it's probably those guys people who voted Brexit. I mean, frankly, if they see a statue or they see an episode of Faulty Towers or Little Britain that has blackface in, they will probably just start, you know, rioting and attacking black people the next morning because they'll be so infected with it. I mean, this view of that there is this lumpen proletariat out there just waiting for the signal. Oh, oh, good. We can stop pretending not to be racist and sexist and homophobic. We can go back to what we really want to be. I mean, how bloody offensive is that? Imagine going around. Imagine living in 2020. Imagine living in this country in 2020 and actually thinking that most of the people that you encounter all day when you're outside your, I don't know, your soya latte cafe is an absolute C-U-N-T. That they are nasty. It's only because of your, your podcast that I'm not saying the full word. Um, <laughs> if you actually, you know, every time they get on a bus or a train or they go into a shop, they think that everyone around them is stupid and nasty. What, what a way to live your life. Yeah. I, I prefer to think that my fellow countrymen and women are actually good people. And the vast majority of people think nice thoughts and want to do nice things. And, and I thought, again, the pandemic showed that there was a real feeling of that in this country. People wanted to get back to having a bit of community and caring about the poorest. And I despair of the people who don't feel that way. It's that kind of misanthropy, just going through life with these misanthropic goggles that makes you see everyone as an evil, racist, prejudiced person. It's really unpleasant. It's unpleasant for us and it must be unpleasant for them yeah. as well. But you mentioned there 
JK Rowling, I wanted to ask you about her. You also mentioned, which I thought was, which I think is a really important point, which is the, the point about institutional cowardice. So the question of why more corporations and universities and, and members of the political class don't stand up and, or as, as you say, stick two fingers up and say, no, we're not going to censor this thing. We're not going to apologize. We're not going to pull down a statue. And th- the reason that made me think of JK Rowling is because she stands out at the moment because yeah. she has stood up and lots of people could say, well, it's easy for her to do. She's extraordinarily rich. She's too big to cancel. You can't really cancel JK Rowling. She's too much of a cultural phenomenon, but there is nonetheless something admirable about the fact that she has been subjected to months and months of the most horrific misogynistic abuse, threats of sexual violence, death threats, simply for believing that there are such a thing as men and women and they are biologically different. And she has not given in. She's not apologized. She's explained herself and she said, this is what I think. I Take didn't it or like leave her it. So, explaining herself, but I'll explain why. Yes. Uh, yeah. You had some issues there, but well, talk about those issues, but also do, do you think that people could learn something from her refusal to bend the knee or, or take the knee and to, to give up her points of view. I, I think we, we can all learn. Like you and I don't bend on, on these issues because I just think, <laughs> do you know what? I'm, I'm, and I have a lot of conversations with people who, who are also trying to stand firm on some of these issues. And and we do sometimes say, God, you know, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth the abuse? Is it worth the fight? And, and as I said to someone the other day, it is because we are actually, not to, not to pat ourselves on the back too far because I'm just a stroppy old thing and I like to stand up for my views. I'll probably do it anyway, but we're speaking for millions of people. I mean, I don't, I don't claim to speak for millions of people, but I know the reaction. When we were fighting on Brexit and when we were fighting on these culture wars, we are, when you look at the polls, when you look how people end up actually voting, when they get into that polling booth and when they actually get to have their say as opposed to what they think they ought to say when uh, uh, you know, the nice person comes around with the, with the, with the microphone for the BBC, or they selectively choose those people. They agree with us, <laughs> you know, and they agree with J.K. Rowling. And um, I mean, Ricky Gervais stands out as well. I have to say, as someone who just again, I've, I've got a load of money. You can cancel. You can, you know, as, as you know, she said, you can never buy my books again, and he said, you can never watch my TV shows again. It doesn't matter. I'm still rolling in it. I don't care, and I'm going to carry on speaking. And I love that. But I didn't like that J.K. Rowling um, revealed that she'd been a victim of. I mean, she's totally entitled to admit it but she was a victim of, she says, of domestic abuse and of sexual assault. And that explained why she was concerned about women-only spaces. I don't think you have to enter the victim Olympics in order to have a say. And, and that's what she was doing. She was saying, don't attack me because here's why. And, and normally the social justice warriors go, oh, you're also on the victim ladder and therefore on the scoreboard at the Olympics. So therefore we can't attack you. Okay, I've not been a victim of sexual assault and I've not been a victim of domestic abuse. I still am concerned for other women and girls, including my 13-year-old daughter, for her safety and their safety uh, in women-only spaces when there are men with penises and sexual urges in those spaces when they are vulnerable and undressed. And I don't think you need to be a victim to say that. But yeah, the more people like her who do speak out, I mean, there's an element where it puts people off because of the abuse. But there's also an element where, I mean, I I used to get abuse on this issue from the trans activists, who, by the way, don't represent in any way uh, the average trans person. 
who just want to go about their ordinary lives and by you know all means you know live your best life and, and live how you want but don't encroach on women's only spaces but actually they gave up on me because they give up on people who don't bend and I've always been as you know if you make a mistake if you if there's a slip of the tongue and you say something you didn't really mean or it comes across wrong say sorry but if you actually believe what you said and you thought about it and you say it from a good place and you mean it never apologize because someone else is offended by it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean you should be required to apologize and they quickly move on these these horrible crowds of uh, and they nearly always is a misogynist abuse from men and i don't even think it needs to be something that only women should speak out about but i'm glad women are speaking out about it but i just find it extraordinary that, you know i've had complaints about things and interviews i've done on my show where i've said you know men don't have periods and exactly the same stuff that J.K. Rowling was talking about, you know, who is it? People who menstruate, who is that? It's women, isn't it? It's women. <laughs> to make a statement like men don't have periods, and my guest said, yes, they do. Trans, oh, I mean, I've lost, again, I've lost track. Who is it? All I know is you need a uterus to have a period. And if you've got a uterus, you're not having a period. Lots of women with uteruses don't have periods. <laughs> but it's a vital component. And if you have been born with a male body, i.e. you're a man, you ain't having a period. Full stop. End of story, nothing else to discuss. Now, if saying that makes you a, a hateful person, a phobic of some sort, or, or, or someone who should be cancelled, then you know what? We live in a world where we need to fight harder and stronger for the right to stand up for. Not an, That's not even an opinion. That's fact. Now, if you can be cancelled for stating calmly and as absolutely J.K. Rowling has always done, incredibly respectfully, facts we have got bigger issues in this country than a lot of people have been worrying about because if you are now saying that facts are not acceptable wh where do we go from there I mean, wh wh what's next what is next you're right it, it is so important not to apologize for something you actually believe is true i mean i, I think that's probably the most important thing anyone can do right now because it's becoming increasingly clear that apologies are the fuel of the angry yeah. SJW mob. And and every time an institution or an individual genuflects to their agenda, it, it, it emboldens them. Well, if people think it's water, they think, oh, throw water on the fire with an apology. It's not water, it's paraffin. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, it, as you say, it emboldens and makes them think, great, next victory. And then they and then they go, ooh, who's next? And yeah. also, how much further can we go? But imagine how we could have in the last, I mean, it's only five, 10 years, and only really in the last couple of years, it's gone completely mad. We've got to a situation where people, can, I mean, people are actually literally losing jobs for for reasonably and calmly and non-aggressively stating biological facts. I mean, frankly, we need to have a long, hard look at ourselves. And I wish more people would stand up for this. I wish, I mean, I'm quite impressed with Liz Truss. She's a qualities minister as well as the International Trade Brief. And she has basically, and I, I heard this from her uh, her staff quite a long time ago, that they, they, just, they, were, they had no intention of going ahead with this Gender Recognition Act and self-identity. That, you know, you could you could just announce, oh, you know, it's four o'clock on a Wednesday. I'm now, I'm now a woman. I'm off to the ladies' loo. No, piss off. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. And the fact that that was ever even considered seriously, let alone by a Tory government, I find quite bizarre. Absolutely. I want to ask you about the Tory government in a moment, but just on the trans issue for a bit longer, I completely agree with you that trans activists, the, the ones who hound women in particular, but also some men, they are not reflective of ordinary trans people, who the vast majority of whom want to just have a nice life. But trans activism has become a deeply 
problematic thing in terms of its censorious impact and the craziness if we're honest the craziness of its agenda so you say that someone might say it's four o'clock on a wednesday i'll go to the women's loo that actually happens i mean there is you know the, the financial times caused controversy a couple of years ago in its top 100 women in business one of whom was a man who is a man on some days and dresses up as a woman on other days and the point is that's a man, not a woman, firstly. Secondly, he's taking that spot away from a woman. The great irony of woke politics, I guess, is that they see racism in everything. You know, a white pop star having dreadlocks is racism. But but them saying to Pretty Patel and Manira Mirza, you're coconuts, apparently that's not racism. And they see misogyny everywhere. You know, you know this because a politician put in his hand on your knee was apparently the greatest misogynistic crime of all time. I'm still having therapy for it, Brandon. (laughs) You know, you'll never recover. But armies of activists on the internet calling JK Rowling a a slut and a bitch and a C-U-N-T. And and threatening to rape her with their big hard cock. And threatening to rape her (laughs) with their their lady dicks. (laughs) So, uh, and apparently that's not misogyny. But But it strikes me that there is misogyny around today. We all know that. And some of it does come from trans activism. And I think you're right, women and men should speak out about this. I know that there are fathers in the United States who have campaigned against the right of boys to use the same changing rooms as their daughters. So it seems to me it's quite an important issue. You know, I'm sorry. I've got me old fashioned. I, you know, I know what 13 year old boys are like. I don't want a 13 year old boy in a tent with my 13 year old daughter. And I don't want him in the change room. I'm a 50 year old woman. I don't want to come across you in the loose either. And it's not because <laughs> I think you're dangerous. I just would rather you weren't there. There was a reason why we instigated this. But what I find really fascinating, and this is that whole thing, the left will eat itself thing, is that they, they again, this, it's the victim Olympics and trans, trans are now the ultimate victims. Are they? ultimate, ultimate victims, uh, overtaking gay people and women. I mean, overtaking lesbians because a lesbian who won't go to uh, bed with a woman with a penis who apparently is still a woman, well, the, well, they are themselves transphobic. I mean, in that territory, but the, but the Labour Party has women-only shortlists uh, still, you know, I, I don't approve of that policy. I've always thought that was patronising. But they were now in a situation where, according to most Labour MPs and activists, although I imagine not most Labour voters, you could actually have, you know, six biologically born men who say they are trans women, no operation, no surgery, just turn up again on a Wednesday afternoon and say, we're all trans women. And you can have a women only shortlist full of biological men. And they think that, yep, that would be fine. I mean, we are absolutely in Alice in Wonderland territory now, aren't we? We are. The final few things I wanted to ask you about is the question of what is being done about all of this. Now, you are doing a huge amount and putting in a great amount of effort to tackle some of this stuff, but it does strike me as quite surprising that the government isn't doing a little bit more. Now, this government is obviously different to the Theresa May government, that's very clear, and Liz Truss is very different to the former equalities people who were very open to the idea of self-identification. So things are changing and there are interesting people and so on. But it strikes me that there's a very contradictory phenomenon in Britain at the moment, which is that we have a population that is pro-Brexit, largely sceptical of PC nonsense, and, you know, adheres to kind of largely traditional values, and uh, elected the government on that basis to a large extent. And yet the government often seems to lack 
confidence and is sometimes a bit cautious and even a bit cowardly on some issues. And we've seen that over the past couple of weeks in relation to the BLM stuff, where there hasn't really been a government spokesperson who has stood up and said, listen, these are our values. This is what we stand for. And this is why we think it's bad to vandalize public property. How do you, how do you explain the situation we find ourselves in where we have an enthusiastically elected government that doesn't seem to be behaving in a particularly confident manner? No, exactly. It's a government that seems to be behaving as as if we were still in that sort of has she hasn't she got a majority Theresa May uh, set of years, non eighty majority. Um, it's quite bizarre. I mean, whether you voted for this government or not, it was a really clear signal to everyone but the Ramonas. It was a vote for Brexit. They'll never they'll never see the signals. They can't see the signals. But it was a vote for Brexit. But it was also I I really got the impression it was. It was a vote for an end to the wokedom. So much of what was thrown at Boris Johnson, and he's not someone for whom you or I have ever really held a candle. I don't think I never thought, oh, he's the saviour or anything like that. But he was going to deliver Brexit. But 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 many criticised him and said, oh, he was he was an Islamophobe for writing about women looking like letterboxes and 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 saying he was racist for some of the articles he's written in the past when he was he was sexist for this and and all these you know women you know he's has had sex with and babies out of wedlock and the Great British British public went, don't care, just not interested, don't care, we, we just want a government that just gets on with the job. And and I just thought that it was a really clear message from the electorate, same as it was in 2016. They ignore that one as well. And I think the real issue is, is the Tories still, they're, they're still shell-shocked. They, they didn't believe this was what was going to happen. I interviewed Boris Johnson two days before the election. And, uh, and I said to him that the mystic Meg I li- live with, my bloke from Stoke, uh, had predicted they'd have a majority of between 60 to 80. And the prime minister looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just saying he's called every other election and referendum right to, to the letter. So, I mean, and what a surprise. He was very accurate on this one as well because he's, he's not living in woke garden Easter world and understands how normal people think. And vast majority in this country are normal. I think the key thing is the Tories, they win elections or win enough votes to be put in power each time in the government, but they've lost every other battle. They've lost the culture wars. They've, they've lost the battles of, of uh, intellectual battles in terms of uh, what's going on in our universities. Every single charity, every single arts body, uh, every every media organisation, TV, radio, newspapers, just across the board, they have just walked away from these incredibly powerful institutions which have so much, and we talk a lot about this internationally, but it's also national as well, soft power. And they set the tone of the debate. And it seems to me every single day when I do my talk radio show, you are seeing an agenda set by those sort of Islington woke, you know, middle class lobbies. And they're setting the agenda and the government is constantly running away and running back from it and defending themselves and justifying themselves and and saying, oh, please don't hate me. Please don't hate me. Instead of being out and proud and saying, this is what we believe in, like it, don't like it. This is what we believe in, and people have voted for it, and we told them this is what we believe in, and now we're going to get on with it. And they've got to stop apologizing for what they believe in. Stop apologizing for thinking that if you've got a penis, you're a man, not a woman. 
Stop apologising for believing that we don't actually live in a horrible society where every white person hates black people. Stop apologising for saying that the average woman is not a victim in 21st century Britain. Stop apologising. Stop apologising for Brexit. Stop apologising for all of it. Stop apologising for thinking that people should be responsible for themselves and not rely on everyone else to, to make life better for them every single moment of every hour of every day and stop them from ever seeing a film or reading a book or hearing a word that they don't like. And I don't understand why the Tories are so scared of standing up for what they know, because poll after poll after poll has told them is what the vast majority of British people think. Absolutely. Final question. Right. Brexit, you and I, big fans of Brexit. We think it's very important that Brexit happens and that it happens properly. Happened. 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 It's already happened. It's happened. It's done. <laughs> but we need, let's get the, the final hurdles crossed. So that's all great. And that was incredibly important. And you and I have both spoken at large rallies of people who were very keen that Brexit happened and very keen that democracy got upheld. So we're very familiar with what people want and what people wanted was to take back control, take back control from Brussels, from the European Union, from these people we don't know, we never voted for, and whose interests run directly counter to ours. It strikes me now that that was largely, after many, many, many battles, four years of fighting against the saboteurs, as the Daily Mail controversially called them, that has largely been successful, that's largely been settled. But it, it seems to me that there's another element of control that needs to be taken back, which is taking back control from the people we've just been talking about, the very negative, fatalistic, quite anti-British, anti-freedom, censorious groups who are unfortunately very, very influential, not only in the media, but in education, in the universities, and in the political sphere to such an extent that even a democratically elected government like Boris Johnson's feels cowed by them very often. So I guess my final question, which in some ways might be an unanswerable question, how do we take back control from those people? What needs to happen next, in your view, to ensure that ordinary people have greater say, not only in relation to the Brussels machine, but also in relation to the kind of woke aristocracy that has emerged in the UK over the past few years? Why not just learn the lessons of the past, as we've been talking about throughout this this podcast? The long-promised bonfire of the Quangos would be a start. I mean, how many times have we heard that over the last 20 years? But but also uh, doing what, you know, the Blairites did very brilliantly. And I'd like to point out, by the way, you know, I voted for Tony Blair into government. You know, I, I don't start from a position where I was opposed to him. But they did something really clever. I mean, they were in power for, you know, 10 years, Blairites. And and then they really cleverly ensured that they would stay in power with that soft power for another 20 or so by very cleverly making sure that every single person who was appointed to any independent body, laughably, uh, any quango, the NHS institutions, the universities, um, as you say, the media, um, as the BBC or otherwise, in the business world, you know, uh, all the people were signed up to those values, signed up to that view of the world of sort of uh, slightly patronising and, and sort of... Uh, 
uh, sort of slightly noblesse oblige sort of attitude towards towards people who were considered somehow beneath them. And this sort of paternalistic view of the world, but also constantly wagging fingers at people for not being having quite the right views. That that's just all over our country. I mean, you, you, I mean we're talking about you know it's arts world and like it's in business, it's in private business now with all the diversity in HR rules. And I'm look, I'm not saying people should be able to go be racist or sexist in the office, but in terms of people just terrified to put a foot wrong or say, hey, you didn't do your job properly, do it right, or we're going to have to let you go. That's virtually illegal now, for God's sake. So I think it's about either getting rid of a lot of these organisations, people on six-figure salaries doing absolutely bugger all of any use to the world. Put it this way, you could put those people on furlough scheme for six months and no one would bloody notice <laughs> whether they were there or not. That's been a bit of a giveaway, that, hasn't it? Um, who, are, who are not essential personnel. But they, the Tories have got to start appointing people. Now, they don't have to be Tories. I'd rather they weren't party-affiliated, but people who share their values, people who will stand up for freedom of speech, uh, for freedom of thought, who aren't ashamed of Britain being Britain and our past, standing up for some of those values that, that the British people, by and large, do share, and certainly their voters share. Um, and, and again, not being ashamed of it, not being not being ashamed of being openly partisan on pushing forward their value system. You know, I don't understand why people have values if they're ashamed of them, but that's what they're going to have to do. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.